Welcome to Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know about Canadian defense and security. This is Steve Sademan, and in a few minutes we'll be bringing on Anessa Kimball, our guest host from Laval University. In today's podcast, we'll talk about Anessa's background and her plans for the security theme of the CDSN. We'll then talk about some of the activities that we've both been doing. The CDSN have had a recent capstone seminar, among other things. Uh, we'll then talk about how we're all adapting to the coronavirus, uh, how we academics are handling the situation, and then we'll talk about how the governments of the world are handling the situation, including whether hegemonic stability theory still applies, where is the United States in all of this. And then we'll talk briefly about some other international relations issues and also the recent changes in the leadership of the Canadian forces with the retirement of General Lantier and the rise of General Rulo as the new Vice Chief of the Defense Staff. And then we'll go to our emerging scholar, David Hoffman, who was at the Capstone. We'll talk about his work on using social network analysis to understand how to disrupt terrorist groups. I'd like to welcome Anessa Kimball of Laval University, or University Laval, to the podcast. She is going to be guest hosting with me today, as Stephanie Von Lutke is on assignment somewhere in the world. So, Anessa, welcome to Battle Rhythm. Merci beaucoup, Steve, for l'invitation. Thanks for inviting me. Anessa is the co-director of the security theme of the CDSN. So, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your work? So, my work particularly is at the intersection of international defense and security cooperation. I'm particularly interested in NATO and NORAD. So working in Canada is a great place to work on that. Do uh, research, mostly quantitative research using rational institutionalist arguments. Um, and right now I'm working on a couple projects, one of which is on um, simultaneously modeling NATO and EU enlargement. And I'm working on another project that is actually related to the workshop that we had for the security node, which is going to be an edited volume on different takes on burden sharing. These are some of my favorite topics, NATO and burden sharing. So we'll talk about that in a couple minutes, address some of the things that we've been doing lately, which is the CDSN was very, very busy until the walls came down and we can no longer travel. We had the capstone event last week in Toronto at the Canadian Forces College. The information about it is online. Uh, just search for CDSN capstone. Went really well. We had eight academics, six of which were able to get here to of which were inhibited by virus uh, impediments, but uh, was actually surprisingly good teleconferencing. I've become less skeptical about the whole idea of teleconferencing as Ali Wine and Matthew Landreau did a, a fantastic job of presenting their research from a distance, but don't tell that to the big wigs who pay our uh, travel, because I still want to travel once we can start doing that again. We had the CDA conference uh, two weeks ago, which was interesting. It was the big conference by our partner, the Conference on Defense Associations Institute, where we had 
the book launch for the Phil and Surgeon and Thomas Junot book on Canadian defense policy, which features many members of the CDSN presenting their take on different elements of the Canadian defense. Yes, uh, I'm still waiting for my copy of that book, Surgeon, if, if you're listening. <laughs> Are you in it? I'm not in it, but I want a copy of it. I want to read it here as a consumer. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in it. I've lost track of who else was in it because we had an edited volume conference of about 25 people, I guess, a year and a half ago, but that wasn't everybody who was in it. So I've kind of lost track. And of course, my copy of the book is in my office, which I'm no longer allowed to go to. Of course, whenever we are allowed again into educational halls. That's right. The other event was Women in International Security Canada has a Queen's chapter. And so Jeff Rice, the project coordinator of the CDSN, and I voyaged to Kingston again shortly before all travel stopped. It was a really fantastic conference. We walked in and uh, we were immediately directed by a bunch of undergraduate women who are running this thing. And they had a, a super conference. It was well organized. Uh, they had some great people speaking. They had Jody Thomas, the deputy minister. They had Mercedes Stevenson, uh, the global anchor. They had Senator McFendron, who gave a really interesting talk with the final advice telling students to embrace their outrage, but direct it strategically, which I thought was a really good message for, for young people. Add one little thing while you're sure. while we're talking about recent events. Of course, at University Laval la- last week, just before all of this really started going crazy, we had our university de- defense conference, UNIDEF owns. And so this is a meeting where we bring together, we had about 200 people. So again, right under the wire, half of them military. And the topic of the year was, is war on the horizon hot or cold? And so we were extremely lucky to have a variety of people, including Commodore Clark, who joined us um, again online at a distance, because as we know, NORAD actually has mandates uh, right now with the coronavirus, so he was not he was not able to travel. But it was extremely interesting to get all of these folks in the room, have an equal number of academics and kind of uh, military folks and practitioners and talk all about some of the things and threats on the horizon. And did they have a conclusion about whether wars on the horizon either caught hot or cold? A couple things that came out of it. First, the, the conference was really drawn from Graham Allison's book, Destined for War. And in his book, he sets out three main arguments as it would relate to possibility of conflict. And I think one of the things that's most interesting is that a lot of his argument essentially relies on perceptions and on mm-hmm. interpreting signaling. And so a lot of what we talked about, which was quite interesting, was, for instance, looking through Kerry Roberts from Mount Royal talked a lot about looking through Russia's eyes and how they see the U.S.-China kind of battle for position and how they're kind of strategizing in their own way to you know, in some senses, even exacerbated a little bit because it it helps Russia if U.S. and China don't get along. So I thought that was very interesting. And at the end of the day, one of the things Allison says is extremely important is basically it's also about honor. And so that really puts a little bit of a question mark next to the future, given that, you know, there's a President Trump who we know is extremely, you know, obsessed, we might say, with his honor and his reputation. So I think at the end of the day, it was a little, we're all in this together. And information is going to be really crucial. And there was a lot of thinking about how Canada can kind of 
help to support partners that are in the Asian region that feel insecurities without trying to provoke China, how Canada really might play a very special role in the Asia Pacific region because of its various capacities and the ways that it's perceived by others, which I thought was uh, really helpful in terms of thinking about Canada's position in the world in the future. Well, that's really interesting because one of the things that I've been curious about is trying to figure out what Canada's role in the Pacific is because it's the Asia Pacific region is so big, Canada is such a small actor in most of this stuff. But the real problem is sort of more of a failure of imagination than anything else about what are the things we can do that can make a small difference on the margins, not whether we can make a huge splash and sort of keep the, the United States and Canada and China at bay, but rather what are the things that we can do? And it, I've been asking this question for a couple of years now, not that I'm a specialist on Asia Pacific by any stretch of the imagination. But I just haven't really heard any good answers about what we can do. So I'll look forward to hearing more about that conference and, and what comes out of it because any, any anything we can get from this, because I think it's pretty clear that if you talk to people at GAC or talk to people about GAC, I just don't think that we're as strong on, on Asia Pacific than we are on Europe. And so that helps to explain why whenever Trudeau goes to Asia Pacific region, things don't go so well. And when he goes to Europe, things go pretty well. I mean, uh, this is really related to, I mean, basically a historical underinvestment in Asia Pacific. I mean, if we look at, um, you know, what types of agreements are signed, where, you know, spending goes, what types of partnership defense agreements are signed. I mean, basically, the United States and most NATO allies have spent a long time kind of creating all of these bridges among each other. But when you kind of look at Asia and look at these the types of agreements that I, I research on, one of the things that you note very clearly is that in Asia Pacific, most of the agreements are bilateral, which is important in context relatively in Europe. Um, agreements are about half uh, bilateral and half multilateral. So I think it speaks a lot to the security environment and that there is really, I mean, in Asia, there's not really this sense of multilateral security. It's kind of one-off U.S. and a partner. And I think that this really speaks to the level in which, you know, countries like Japan feel insecurity. And unfortunately, I mean, this week I was supposed to be going to the Canada-Japan Peace and Security Symposium that was going to be held in Ottawa, but unfortunately it's canceled. Well, it's suspended. And so we hope that we will be able to have this symposium in the summer and exchange a lot. But I know that mm -hmm. uh, Japan is extremely interested in thinking about more ways to connect with Canada and to have a little bit of more of an open view, opening the friendship essentially to some other things, which I think is good. Yeah, that, that sounds really good. Uh, closer to home, one of the interesting things that Stephanie and I have been talking about for some time is speculation about the next chief of defense staff. And in, in the past week or two, we've seen some interesting deck chairs being rearranged. The Vice Chief uh, Lantier, uh, who was seen as being a possible CDS, is retiring, which means he doesn't think that he that a decision is going to be made anytime soon in his favor. And then we see Mike Rouleau, who is currently head of uh, Canadian Joint Operations Command, is now going to be the vice chief, which means he's not going to be the chief of defense anytime too soon because they're not. it's not like they're going to put him in that spot for a few months while Vance is thinking about retiring. So this looks to me like we're going to have uh, General John Vance around for a while to come since the most likely competitors for his seat are now out of position. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, lots of changes happening. I don't think that this is extremely surprising. Um, I mean, my sense is that this is a normal kind of rotation period, if I'm not incorrect. Well, but, it's, it's, I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it, it's it's abnormal to see the vice chief retire after being in the position for only a year. I've been likening the vice chief defense 
a job to the Spinal Tap drummer, uh, since in the movie Spinal, Spinal Tap drummer w- would disappear and get killed every uh, so often. I mean, this is the sixth vice chief of defense staff we're going to have in four years, so it's not a normal rotation at all. And I think one of the wishes that Steffi and I had at the New, Year, you know, New Year's resolutions was to have some stability at the three-star spots. And this is the antithesis of that, right? We, we're not only losing one three-star, but the other three-star is moving from a job he's only held for a year or two to, to that spot. So it's, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, the big conference at the CIA conference, you know, this is one of the things people talk about, gossip about, is what's going to happen soon. And I was expecting as of a couple weeks ago that Vance would be retiring in the summertime and we'd see some movement at that level. But I don't think that's going to happen now. I mean, in part, now that we're in the middle of a crisis, it makes sense to keep everybody in place, keep the, the chief of defense staff in place during the middle of a pandemic. But it's still striking to see that these other officers are Obviously, Lanthier saw the writing of the wall and decided that this wasn't for him uh, to, to stick around as being the, the vice chief for much longer. So I, that, that, that's the big Canadian defense story of, of the week, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it also goes to show that this is a position that is obviously extremely demanding. You're managing a lot of things. You know, I, the individuals in these positions, you know, obviously have have extremely large experiences and qualifications. And when you see these individuals retiring that you that certain insiders were anticipating being the future. Yeah, I mean, I think it, what can we what can we take away from this? Of course, it may also say a little bit about Vance. <laughs> In some senses, so yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, you are following the the, the defense staff far more closely than I am, I admit. So I guess this leads to the question of you've talked about the cancellation of the the yes. one conference. How are you adapting to life in the age of Corona? Yes. I'm currently teaching a graduate course on international institutions. And so ironically, uh, we had read, we're reading Todd Sandler's book, Global Collective Action, in which there's actually a chapter on pandemics and talking about the various ways in which we're going to fail in, you know, managing pandemics. And so it was fairly apt then when Corona started and the COVID-19 dashboard came out by Johns Hopkins that I projected it in my classroom last week. We spent time talking about how this is going to grow and particular how um, social cultures will determine how it's going to spread. And so, you know, I think that this is, you know, we're living right in the middle of a, a, a collective action. Well, we're, we're trying to get away from the brink of a collective action failure in some senses. And one of the other things we talked about was information and how, for instance, the information in Canada not only appeared to come out earlier, I mean, we might recall our social media feeds had tons of, you know, Government of Canada ads about, you know, health and this thing, you know, even weeks ago, right, relative to the United States, where we might say the strategy was a little bit of a ostrich with the head in the sand for a little while. And now we're kind of coming around to a begrudging acceptation um, that this is a real thing in the United States. Me personally, of course, I have, I'm a cancer survivor. So I was contacted relatively quickly by uh, my where I was treated for cancer. And they told me that basically I'm, I have to go into self-isolation. Um, and so that's what I've been doing since Friday. In the Mm -hmm. interim, my son was actually with his father on a cruise uh, last week. And so he is in self-isolation with his father. I saw him from a distance of about eight feet. And so, yeah, this is for me, it's, you know, it's gotten kind of personal. I mean, I know that there are a lot of professor parents that have their kids home and are facing challenges, but I I also feel for folks that, you know, are separated from their kids and facing different challenges. Like you, I imagine your daughter, she's in the U.S. Yeah, she's in Los Angeles. So she's an adult. She's 24. And 
she's dealing with the fact that she wanted to change jobs this spring and now she probably can't because she works in the entertainment business and the movie slash TV business and it's going to be very unlikely that she can do that given that the, their entire business is shut down. She'll, she's still getting paid, she's still working, but her desire to move on is frustrated. She's managing, she's been doing better than some of my other relatives who've been uh, in denial. Uh, one of my nieces has been exposed, so she's having to deal with that and she's been tested and you know the problem with this is you got to wait days to get the, the results. Uh, uh, I've got an 87-year-old mother who's been having heart problems this spring, so she's in self-isolation, but she should be fine except for that she has AIDS now, and those AIDS may come in and carry the disease in, into the, her my mom's condo. Of so we're worried about that. It's a difficult time. I, I think everybody has their own challenges with it. I think a lot of us are dealing with sort of the emotional disappointment, frustration, sadness that has to, that, you know, that our various opportunities are now being cut off for the foreseeable future, and people are talking two weeks or four weeks, but I, I'm pretty sure we're done until June or July in terms of any kind of real significant change back to the any kind of status quo ante. Of course. I mean, that is one of the challenges with the pandemic like this is that as a, a defense economist that's been, you know, I've been looking at the JHU modeling that they're doing, you know, and some of the things, you know, I've looked at the technical details and it's okay to be a little bit afraid because actually the models that they're that they're modeling off of uh, have parameters that are incorrect that we now know for instance when they started doing the modeling they did not know the incubation phase length and they did not know the the period of which you remain essentially contagious and so we can safely say that those models are under predicting what this is going to look like and so i think that getting into the mentality that this is something that is going to go through the spring and may even go into the summer is exactly what we should be doing. It's unfortunate because we know as academics, summer is one of the times that we really try to profit from for doing research, for going places, for networking and communicating. And so uh, I think that that's going to be a, a little bit of a change of culture for us. And, you know, I think also that there are a lot of us as well that are, you know, transitioning courses online and trying to invent material that, frankly, we we invent in the classroom. <laughs> you know, as I look through my note, give lectures and I literally have things saying, talk about this for five minutes. <laughs> as you know, that's what you do when you're an experienced lecturer, right? Your notes are much less about saying every word than giving yourself reminders of the things you need to do, right? Many of us are now thinking, you know, how are we going to do that kind of extemporaneous stuff that we do with our notes in the classroom in this, you know, new context of online and of course, in a situation where not all of our students might have access either. That's also something that I, I have been personally worried about knowing that, for instance, a lot of our grad students come from Africa at University Laval. You know, we kind of have, we have a small community of international students that are right now essentially isolated multiply. And so I think that's also something that professors need to think about. We're also in this, but there are some people that are experiencing this completely out of their environment. And so I think we need to be sensitive to that too. Yeah, I teach just graduate students, so I haven't been as concerned about technology access because I think most of our master's students and PhD students do have access to the internet, do have access to have laptops, do have laptops with cameras. So far, nobody's told me that they haven't. The good news about where we are in the academic calendar
calendar. I, I don't know where Laval finishes, but we're pretty close to the end of the semester. And I know Carlton for a while there was delaying and delaying because they were hoping they could get there. But then they obviously they, they changed course when it became very clear that we're not getting there. So I had my first online class last night. I have a PhD seminar where people present their research, their research proposals. My MA class on civil military relations, we're also in the part of the semester where the students are supposed to be doing presentations on their research. And I hadn't really thought about the problem of access to materials because I assume that most of the stuff that they're going to be accessing is online. But I do need to think about that a little bit more. I definitely will be taking that into account for grading. Like, I'm not going to say, wow, there are no books cited here. How could you possibly have done your research? I think most of the journals they need are online, so I think they'll be able to do their work that way. But I'm still trying to figure out how they should present their research in class because they could do the same big blue button, which is the Carlton Technology is called, or I could just have them record their, and I'm tempted to do this, just have them record their own presentations on their own computers and then upload them. And then we could all listen to them, watch them at our own schedule and give them comments. So that way we don't all have to be online at the same time. I, one of the things I've heard from a number of professors, including Sevi Carvin and Craig Forsese, had a special episode of the Intrepid podcast on teaching in a time of Corona. And maybe we should not all try to do synchronous stuff. That is, have everybody online at the same time, but maybe try asynchronous stuff where people put things up and they can then be consumed whenever they can be. You know, some of our students might have jobs they have to do. I know a lot of our students have jobs they have to do, but I'm not sure how many of them are actually doing them. Some of them may have kids and their kids are no longer in school. They're no longer daycare, yada, yada. So that's what I'm trying to do. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, uh, I think everybody is in this kind of together and we're all kind of, you know, stumbling through. And like I said to my students, I think the most and in a lot of my colleagues, the most important thing is, you know, have patience, be extremely accommodating. I, I mean, I just decided that I'm just going to say yes if a student wants an accommodation. It's not made to do any judgments right now. You know, everybody is going through their own things. We have five weeks left. So this effectively hit us right after the midterm. As we're here talking about defense and security is kind of the larger implications of this uh, pandemic, particularly on, on, you know, Canada and on the, you know, its forces. Thanks for the segue. What do you think of as being the major implications for Canada of this pandemic in terms of our security position? Does this put us in a, in a, in a worse position? Is this we're lucky that we're sort of out of harm's way in terms of conventional military stuff so we can weather this particular storm without any real security implications. You know, you're the co-director of the security theme, which has a broader imagination of what security (laughs) is than just conventional military stuff. So what's your take? I mean, uh, you know, I think that one thing we all need to take into consideration is that as, you know, economists and rational choice place folks would say the informational environment is crap right now. There's information that's evolving. There's misinformation. And so one of the things that all of the governments are working under is, you know, we, we talk about the fog of war, but this is, you know, very much a fog that they're working in. One thing that I, I would say is that in Canada, relative to kind of the United States, reaction was extremely proactive. In my view, I felt that the government was trying to get out there, get ahead. The irony, as I said, right before all of this kind of came down on Thursday, you know, we had a room full of 200 military folks. And before we even started, the highest ranked gentleman in the room stood up and basically told them all that we're in a hygiene situation here, even though we're all together and literally gave them all the five second spiel on what they're supposed to be doing as soldiers, Mm -hmm. that they have a responsibility right now to maintain hygiene and that this is larger than, you know, the people in the room. And I thought that that was very impressive 
impressive because, you know, obviously this is the man that, you know, has the most respect, who's literally keeping this message extremely clear to the soldiers in the room. As a civilian, you know, that gave me a level of confidence that I think that I would have liked to have kind of spread that at that moment, although we aren't spreading things right now. Well, we got to spread the good things, not the bad things. Obviously, the key question of the day is that we're recording this on a Tuesday morning. On Monday, Prime Minister Trudeau announced that he was closing the border to everybody but Americans, Canadians, diplomats, and people necessary for travel. So teams of pilots. I don't think you and I in our lifetimes ever thought that Canada would close its borders. So, you know, as as a crisis and as an an act that is, you know, out of the norm, I think that, that it's notable. I'm not surprised that Americans remain able to enter and leave Canada in some senses because the relationship is extremely deep, even though it is also clear that in the U.S., the rate of uh, infections is a much steeper rate than here in Canada. And so my my suspicion is that, you know, that was uh, very much a bargain and a negotiated <laughs> outcome to permit Americans to still, you know, come and go in Canada. My sense is that it was probably not necessarily the the, the most preferred thing to do, but it's the necessary thing to do with the, the depth of the relationship and with the administration south of the border. And so, you know, I think that it speaks to the the cooperation, but I think it also speaks a little bit to the asymmetry in the relationship. Yeah, it turns out a lot of our food chain and our medical supply chain goes through the United States. And people have been speculating about this being done to assuage Trump's ego to make sure that he doesn't get pissed off. I do think it's problematic in part because the United States is a hot zone. If you wanted to take a look at the countries that were the hot zones in the world, you would definitely put the United States up there somewhere in the vicinity of, you know, not quite at Italy yet, but Italy next week kind of thing. And so it makes sense to close the border in that way. But on the other hand, the disease is already here. And the way we're really going to stop spreading is not keeping out other people, but just keeping distant from each other. You know, ultimately, we're all going to get exposed to it at some point. All the all these efforts are really to slow down the spread, not to stop it. Would it make sense to keep all the Americans out? Well, you, you and I are both Americans. So how do we feel about that? I mean, like you say, it's here. I think in some senses, it's if we're all constructivists, we're reconstructing society right now in the short term. We're changing social cultures. This will be harder for some people than for others. I mean, I guess the good news is as academics, we already have a very strange social culture. So I think a lot of us don't have, <laughs> uh, aren't too sad about isolating. And probably, honestly, a lot of our students aren't too sad we're isolating either. But, uh, you know, I think that, and, and in Canada, we are, it is good that we're big geographically right now. It is good that the urban areas, you know, we don't have very many large cities. One of the things when you look at the U.S. map versus the Canadian map, you can see the effect of large urbanization spreading extremely fast there. And so I think in some senses, Canada's largeness and its geographic, in its geographic extent will will help it kind of, you know, weather this uh, this pandemic. But at the end of the day, it's, it's about individual behavior and how long can we keep this kind of socialized individual behavior I wonder. Well, go back to the international relations, which is what we're experts in. And you mentioned burden sharing as being one of your research yes. topics. Well, one of the first things that happened is that Italy put out the call to the European Union saying, send us stuff, and nobody showed up. Yep. Uh, whereas now the Chinese are sending planes left and right, dumping large masses of equipment and personnel in places like Italy. So is this a failure of NATO? Is this a failure of the EU that, that the countries haven't been able to cooperate, that collective action has not really occurred? G7 statement that came out yesterday was 
was incredibly bland and didn't have much in the way of specifics. You know, what well, does I mean, it say about the robustness of international cooperation, which is your topic? I mean, I think that the, you know, this is really about, in some senses, it's a story about uncertainty. It's about heterogeneity and interests. And, you know, we're, we're not getting over, you know, our Hobbesian nature in some senses, right? States, Italy asking for resources and then in a period in which states are essentially trying to calculate the, you know, the possibility that this will, how bad it will be at home, you know, suggests that their unwillingness to contribute essentially is related to their national interest and their egotism or their ego after all, right? I mean, the one of the things we should note is that it's not like China. It's actually a very rich billionaire in China that is um, doing a lot of this um, support. Uh, and so, again, it's not governments coming to the aid of each other in some senses, you know, it's some individuals that are taking responsibility. And I was, you know, I was, I, I made a joke in my class that is on one hand true. Five, six weeks ago, if you would have asked what the World Health Organization does, people would have said, "Is aren't those the guys that deliver Bill Gates's malaria nets? And now we're thinking they're going to save the world. And so I think in some senses, it, it highlights the fact that we have, or maybe our our focus on defense, security, and economics when it comes to cooperation has led us to create these vacuum of holes when it comes to other things that require collective action, like health. Um, well, the, the frustrating thing about this is that we have an infrastructure. We have the WHO. We have had episodes in the past that we've learned from. We've had the Ebola. We've had swine flu. We've had all kinds of things in the recent past. And what's very frustrating is there's there are toolkits. There are toolboxes. There are strategies. There's been training. And... We can't lay it all at the feet of the United States, but, oh, we no. try, but we can try to do a little bit of that because, you know, the news came out uh, on the Bombshell bod podcast. They had uh, in the past week a woman who had been in the Obama administration. And one of the things the Obama administration did when they were turning over the keys to the U.S. government, to the Trump administration, is that a series of exercises. And they practiced hurricanes. They practiced something else. I think a refugee flow or whatever. But they practiced pandemic. The problem is, is that Trump administration, A, has turned over so much. There are very few people who experience that exercise are around. Exactly. And and B, you have a government that is hostile to science and hostile to international organizations and hostile to international cooperation. And so even if you put aside the fact that Donald Trump himself is widely ignorant about most things, his systematic breaking of the United States relationship with all these international actors and the breaking of the national security structure has made it difficult for the United States to lead. What this experience shows is that collective action is really hard. And the hegemonic stability theorists had it right, which is when you don't have one leading power facilitating cooperation, cooperation gets really hard to get going. And in the past, you know, when Obama was president, when George Bush was president, when Bill Clinton was president, when we had the other presidents, and you had these kinds of crises, the United States would lead and would send resources and would push its their allies together to take stances. So I could have, if this had happened 10, five, 10 years ago, you could imagine the United States shipping things to Italy at the outset of this. And maybe us all making more decisions about shutting off travel of course, a month, and that's why, month or that's two ago. Part of the hegemonic stability theory literally relies on the hegemon being benevolent, right? Benevolent um, and stable. And, <laughs> so, and, when, and, and in a world situation where the benevolence is in question and the stability is in question, right? I mean, what Trump has done, which Wolf argues, uh, is that, you know, he is he's a transactionalist, right? He has his two main concerns in life are essentially transactions because he is a businessman and his reputation, right? And so, 
transactions literally as his transactional approach is what has led to divisions in various international institutions and divesting in various international institutions because right he is of the mind that everybody else is has been freeloading off the United States. And this is when we are literally, we're fixing our books, right? We're, we're making other states contribute more. The United States is contributing less. And this is just, and, and Trump sees this as kind of a natural order of the world in some senses that, it, mm-hmm. and, and I think in his mind, he's, he's not seeing the United States as uh, retreating. He's forcing other people to take more responsibility, and what which we is find a different is, perception. What we find out is, is that when, when the United States doesn't lead, other countries don't really fill a breach. Even China, which wants to become the next world power, is not really been leading particularly well in this at all. And so they're just first. They're not, you know, in terms of experience in this pandemic. And while they're helping out here and there, and there's some good soft power that they're earning from that, they haven't been able to get countries to cooperate to manage this crisis. They are left off of the G7 phone call. They're, you know, they're, they're a G20 well, country. I mean, you know, Trump is out there calling it the China virus, which is also problematic. <laughs> what, xenophobia by this administration? I'm shocked. I'm shocked that they're relying on racist tropes. But what we're seeing here is that one of our long-standing theories of international relations, hegemonic stability theory, which has been discussed since the 1970s, still has some power today, which is that while we would like to think that norms and institutions can get us all to cooperate, it turns out you need a very powerful actor willing to expend resources to mm-hmm. to get countries to buy in and to to lend resources to where they're needed. And the United well, States I mean, is doing Sandler that. Sandler talks about this, you know, is essentially it's these pandemics are, you know, they're weak link collective action issues. And the problem is, is that, you know, the weaker the health systems mm-hmm. in many states, the more that this is going to spread. And so without leadership to provide a minimal level of the good, you're going to have undersupply. And, and literally, the, the prognosis is the actors make prognosis based on their perception of costs and benefits from the institution, mm-hmm. right? And so the issue is right now is that, you know, for instance, Trump has decided institutions like the WHO, right, you know, he has evaluated his individual cost-benefit analysis to be as though that this may not be the, the thing that's that's helping him. And so I think it's important to, to remind that there's, even though we can talk about these in terms of the hegemon, this argument can also be adapted to, to other, you know, theoretical perspectives as well. Well, that, so that's what's happening here in Canada. In the world, I mean, most of the focus has been on on the virus, but there are other things going on. So there's more violence yeah. between the United States and the Iranians using Iraq as their playground. Of course. Uh, people are worried that this tit for tat will escalate. But I guess maybe the bright side is as long as the United States and Iranians are killing people in Iraq and not in Iran or outside of the air region it can stay this level of escalation, it will not escalate further. Yeah, I mean, I think we should expect, um, you know, states that are generally challenging the status quo to take this time right now when there's a large attention on something else and try to be doing opportunistic moves and pushing things where we might not want them to be. For instance, there was a a couple uh, Russian, but a couple of Russian reconnaissance planes were over the Arctic um, and were intercepted. Um, and 
I have been noticing these things with increased frequency in Canada, also Norway, other, you know, other allies um, in the Arctic have been reporting these things. Um, what was interesting this time is that it was more reconnaissance planes than last time, and they hung out longer than they did last time. So I think this also speaks to this idea of kind of poking, you know, on the right where we're busy on the left, which I think we should expect. And we've also seen the hacking of Department of Health and Human Services in the United States. Yeah. So the hacking is not stopping. It's actually maybe accelerating. And there are various reports of, um, I mean, we got an email from uh, our, even at our institution saying that there have been various attacks and attempts said false information about the COVID um, via emails that appear as though they're coming from the university, which I think is also might be very likely to happen. I mean, if you want to cause a public panic, a good way would be to appear as though you're official and then disinform people. Mm hmm. No, that's definitely a case that we're seeing some of these things cross over, that the pandemic is giving bad actors opportunities, and they're going to rely on a variety of tools in their playbooks. Uh, you mentioned earlier that one of the challenges was we have a lot of bad information about this pandemic. Well, that's not entirely accidental. Part of it is, is governments acting slowly, but part of it is also malicious actors acting badly. So uh, we got to recommend to our listeners to to try to be discriminating in what they consume. We have way too much time now to consume stuff on the internet since we're all stuck at home. Of course. We got to be a little more careful about what we're listening to. What I've liked about both Canada and Carleton is that leaders of both of those organizations have been getting better about updates. So for instance, I've been getting almost a daily email from my president of my institution updating us on what they're doing, such as they're making clear they're not kicking out the international students, that the international students can stay for as long as, as, as they need to, that they're going to pay people who aren't really doing their job right now because they can't, uh, they're going to continue paying them. So I think the more we have governments present clear information, the less space we create for the trolls of the world, which would mean Russia, to try to mess with us. Mm -hmm. And this really speaks to the importance of transparency and information transmission um, in democracies. You know, one of the things that is a lot of people have criticized Trump for essentially is is removing um, a lot of the or downsizing a lot of the uh, bureaucratic actors that would be the transmitters of information. He fired everybody that was on the, the, the pandemic health committee when he came into office and refilled the whole committee with people that, you know, were he preferred more. And, you know, it's notable that this committee now, you know, contains at least two reverends that are not doctors. And so I think that says a lot about how Trump thinks about the pandemic. It's about thoughts and prayers. Yeah, um, I do think that Canada may have been slow in some ways, but I do think the government's doing a better, better job these days of informing the public about this. Oh, uh, absolutely. I think there are a lot of difficult choices to be made, but... Uh, I mean, in seven I, minutes, we're supposed to have another news conference. Okay, since, well... Well, okay. I mean, since uh, they announced that uh, Health Canada would be giving a 12 noon news conference every day in front of uh, the prime minister's residence. I think that's pretty transparent. <laughs> well, it depends on what they end up telling us, but I, I do yeah. think creating regularity, creating patterns is a good idea. I will conclude this podcast the way I concluded the last podcast with a call for people to wash their hands and to pay attention to the restrictions. A lot of this stuff is voluntary. We're not going to have people on the streets, police on the streets and army folks on the streets preventing us from going places. So it's on us to make sure that we minimize our exposure. Ultimately, the thing this is all about trying to give the hospital space and time so that way they can take care of the people who are in the worst shape and for those of us who are not 
in harm's way to stay out of harm's way. Exactly, exactly. And of course, I mean, uh, I, I would like to thank everybody who's working in the government, everybody who's working in the public health system. I know those folks are on the front lines and this is an enormous task. And so, you know, these folks are really going to end up being, you know, the heroes out of all of this, you know, people mm -hmm. that are, you know, working long shifts. Um, I know that there have also, there's been a large number of folks with health, like health experience who have, uh, you know, answered the call for mobilization. And so, you know, I think that you know, what we're, we're seeing right now is, you know, we're seeing some very Canadian behavior. So I think that that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I do, I do want to conclude with the words of Tom Hanks, who was one of the first people struck by this, which is uh, since he did the Mr. Rogers movie, he remembers Mr. Rogers' words, which are when, when things like this happen, one way to reassure the kids is to say, watch the helpers and what they're doing. Uh, there's a lot of people out there doing a lot of helping. And the least we could do to help is to stay out of the way of the helpers and let them do their job. Anessa, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, we may be talking to you more in the weeks to come since we're all going to have a lot more time on our hands. I appreciate you coming on Battle Rhythm. I'm very pleased and happy with everything that the security note has been doing, including broadening our notion of security to include things like pandemics. You guys are ahead of the out of the wave. I do think there's going to be plenty of room for work down the road about understanding how countries react to this, how our system, how the international system, how our international organizations reacted to this. Uh, so you'll have plenty of work to do once we can actually get back out of our houses, back into our offices and classrooms. Thank you very much for inviting me. And to our listeners, be careful, be safe, and good luck with all of this. Today we're speaking with David Hoffman. He is one of our Capstone Scholars. Welcome to Battle Rhythm, David. You presented a paper at the Gregg Center. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. The talk was uh, about targeted removal, which is one of my, my main areas of research. Uh, I'm a social network analyst, and one of the, the big branches of, of my uh, interest is how to optimize the disruption of covert and illicit networks, uh, oppositional forces, militias, criminal organizations. Uh, and essentially, I was uh, talking to um, the people at the CTC uh, as part of the Greg Center's conference about some of the, the broader concepts involved with uh, dealing with dark networks, those, those types of networks that actively try to occlude or conceal parts of their or all of their operation from oppositional forces and essentially trying to inform them um, some of the common techniques used to uh, essentially get the biggest bang for your buck when allocating resources, which actors, which organizations and which links are the best to target in order to get uh, to disrupt uh, oppositional forces in the most efficient way. And uh, how do you figure this stuff out? Uh, as I mentioned, I'm a, I'm a social network analyst. So uh, is, social network analysis is, is essentially a collection of techniques and, and methods that uh, allows us to, well, you ever see those those really large kind of networks or, or, or uh, diagrams with all these little dots and these connections? They look like giant spider webs. That's, that's a big part of social network analysis. It, it's more than just that, though. It's, it's, about, uh, it's about numbers, but not, not too much about numbers, which essentially informs us uh, about some of these, these larger concepts 
such as cohesion, network cohesion. Uh, it, it helps us identify through a concept. Uh, I'll keep it. I'll keep it as non-technical as possible, I suppose. Uh, uh, something called between a centrality. It allows us to, to pick out brokers. And there's a robust um, there's a robust literature, particularly in, in criminology, that that looks at the best ways to uh, deal with illicit and covert networks using social network analysis. And it can easily be uh, applied to concepts and uh, concerns for the CAF. And it's starting to, to gain a, a lot more traction in terrorism and security studies as well. Really interesting. And I guess the question is, does taking out a bin Laden, does it have to be the top? But I guess it sounds to me like it's more your focus is more on people in between, right? Yeah. And, and that's really what the current literature is, is essentially pointing at. Garth Davies and one of his students, Edith Wu, actually came out with a really interesting article about leadership succession in Al-Qaeda that used social network analysis, I think, in perspectives on terrorism, which, which again, shows that how dynamic some of these networks are. You, you think from a, a colloquial or uh, day-to-day knowledge that you chop the head off the snake, which which is very much an approach that uh, police have traditionally used, that the armed forces have, have traditionally used. It, it doesn't work that way when you're engaged in asymmetric combat and asymmetric warfare. Uh, essentially, these networks, whether they do it on purpose or intuitively, they, they are structured in such a way that makes it pretty easy for someone to slide in and replace a, a, um, a nominal leader. Um, the same thing is found in, in criminal networks. You can arrest all the Pablo Escobars and El Chapos that you want. But as long as there's a demand, as long as there's a drive to engage in asymmetric warfare or, or supply a market with drugs, uh, it doesn't take very much for someone to uh, slide in and, and take over the leadership. So, it, again, it's it's not about necessarily targeting the nominal leader. It's about targeting the weak points in these large, complex, interconnected networks. And generally, the, the, the literature points at brokers and brokerage, the, the people who bind the various parts of the network together. It doesn't matter how uh, efficient a, a cell is, if it can't connect or get resources from HQ, and if you, you enable that situation by removing the broker, they're, they're essentially useless. So what are you working on now? Now I'm, I'm working on uh, right-wing extremism, um, particularly in the in Canadian context with some of my co-investigators. We're in talks with DRDC, we're in talks with Public Safety Canada. There's, there's a lot of interest, particularly with uh, recent high-profile cases such as Patrick Matthews out, out west in Manitoba and his recent arrest down south after he crossed the league into the U.S. There, there's a lot of interest in right-wing extremist ideologies in the Canadian Armed Forces and also uh, outside of the Canadian Armed Forces in Canada uh, at large. So I'm engaged in a, a three-year project led by Dr. Barbara Perry, and I'm heading up the Atlantic Canadian portion of it that looks at uh, right-wing extremism from a, a large environmental scan. And uh, a lot of side projects are coming from there, uh, again, looking at various facets, such as um, right-wing extremism in the Canadian Armed Forces. Well, that's really an important issue that we've been talking about here in the Battle Rhythm podcast about the threat of white-wing extremism in, in the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, thanks, David Hoffman, for appearing on the Battle Rhythm podcast at the Capstone Seminar at the Canadian Forces College on March 10th. Thank you very much. This summer, the CDSN is piloting a new institute, the CSN Summer Institute will be at Carleton University. It is the first of its kind in Canada as it is to provide a new cross-sectoral professional development and networking opportunity for approximately 20 people, including junior members of the Canadian Armed Forces, folks from across the government, from academics, as well as the media. It is to take place August 17th, 21st. We're still planning on that, even in as we face a much uncertainty with Corona. 
Uh, the idea of this is to discuss uh, Canada's defense making of processes, the threats Canada faces, the dynamics of Canadian civ mill relations, the challenges that we face to get the best equipment and to recruit a diverse force, and the roles played by special operations forces and allies. The course, the week-long course, will include a strategic foresight exercise, as well as other innovative techniques to think about Canadian defense and security. Major priority and what makes it so innovative is that we want to help each sector of the defense and security community help understand the perspectives of those in the other sectors. So we hope that our students, our participants, learn as much from each other as they learn from us. Please apply. You can find us by either Googling CDSN Summer Institute or go to www.cdsn-rcds.com slash summer-institute. You can email us with questions at cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. Thank you. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at cdsnrcds or email them to cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. Thank you.